Good morning, everybody. It's good to see everyone here today. Very excited for today. We are continuing our Nehemiah series. We've been, I think this is, I don't know, week 13, week 14, something or other. And don't worry, we're getting towards the end of this series. I know this feels like an epic, long series, which it has been of biblical proportions, quite literally. Uh, and we're getting to walk towards the, the, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel here. Uh, but let me recap it for you. It's called Return to God because God's people drift away from Him. And history is this cycle of God's people drifting away and God intervening and bringing them back. And so the recap is this, that even though God had saved ancient Israel from uh, Egyptian slavery and brought them into their own land and called them to be a light to other nations and to establish a just and righteous kingdom, they failed that and they perpetuated evil in the world. And God radically intervened and sent foreign nations to conquer them and to exile them into Babylon. And they were there for 70 years. And this was God's intervention to stop the evil of his own people. And then after that 70 years, they begin to return. One of the people who returns is Nehemiah. And he is the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes. He gets resources to rebuild Jerusalem. Uh, it's been destroyed and harmed in many ways. And uh, he, he returns to do that. And uh, Basically, the, the, the parts of the walls have been torn down, the gates have been burned down, and it's still in somewhat disrepair from the original conquering. And God's people are weak and vulnerable and might be exterminated at this point. And they've got lots of enemies that hate them, that want to destroy them. And we've seen time and again those enemies ramping up their attacks, ramping up their accusations, and Nehemiah having to stand strong to resist those attacks, to fortify the city and to protect God's people. This matters because God had promised to bring about the Savior of the world through a descendant of Abraham. And so the story of Nehemiah, the events of Nehemiah, are wrapped up in the coming of Jesus, in the coming, the ministry of Jesus, the work of Jesus on the cross, to die for our sin, to take our sin on the cross. That's why all of these events in the Old Testament, that's what they're building towards. For those Old Testament saints, they couldn't quite see all that. They couldn't quite see ahead. But for us, looking back, we see how it all works together. So today we're going to be in chapter 8, verses 13 through 18, carrying right along from last week. We've seen now, as we've gone on the journey with Nehemiah, they have restored the city's defenses, and now they're in this time where they're reclaiming their identity. They're getting back into their customs. They're turning back to the, the words of God and the ways of God. So let's pray, and then uh, let's read God's word. Jesus, thank you that you're with us. Thank you for your word, and I pray, teach us today. Help us to have hope in you, have trust in you. Help us to be those who really are diligently looking at your word, that we might do your word, that we may, that we may seek to uh, study it and seek to implement it. Lord, that you would help us to be those who are fervent about that. That's not a secondary thing. That's not a thing that we try and get to, but that's the main thing. That's what we're giving ourselves to help us to be uh, that way and to prize that and to prioritize that today. We, and through this season, through, through the life and ministry of our church, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Starting in verse 13, continues like this. It says, On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. 
and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is God's word. So the last section last week we had learned that it was their it was the first day of the seventh month, which was their New Year's Day, it's like their January first, and they customarily would blow trumpets, the people gathered in, and on that particular, this particular occasion, this is the first time they're doing it now that they've re rebuilt Jerusalem, uh, the people are hungry for the word, so they call on Ezra, the priest, to say, read us from the law of Moses, we want to hear it. And so that's what we looked at last week. They, the first part of the day, they're being read the book of the law, the sections probably from Deuteronomy and places like that in the, one of the, in the first five books of the Bible. And that was the first half of the day. And then the second half of the day, uh, the priest sent them all home and said, go and have a feast. Go and eat and drink sweet wine and celebrate. Like this is a day of celebration. This is a good day. That's what had happened on the first day. And uh, now we're, see, it's the day after the first day. Now it's their January 2nd. And uh, there's lots of principles here, lots of things that we learn, lots of things that we do as Christians. We're going to get into how we interpret and understand the Old Testament, because there's some things in the Old Testament we, we read that we say, well, should we still be making booths and living in them as Christians? Is that something we should be doing? We'll discuss all that. We'll get to all that. Uh, but the principles are definitely true that we're to be people who diligently give ourselves to the teaching of Scripture, to understand it, that we're hungry for it, and uh, also that we have times of celebration. So as Christians, what do we do? We, we, we have, you know, Obviously, we have New Year's Day and New Year's Eve celebrations, but we, we celebrate the birth of Christ. We celebrate, celebrate the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. We celebrate these key markers uh, because they're important. You know, and even our Church Appreciation Day that's coming up on July 24th, it's not in the Christian calendar, but it's a day of celebration. It's something, it's a reason to say we want to thank God. We want to enjoy the grace that he's given us and celebrate what God is doing in our lives, in each other's lives, and, and to make much of God and his church and what he's up to. And so we have these key moments of celebration as well. And then, uh, so this is the second day uh, of the year, and all the families that had gathered into Jerusalem, into the public square, that, that heard all of Ezra's teaching and the, the teaching of the, the Levites and the priests, they've all, you know, on, on, on January 1st, they returned to their houses, they're still in their houses. But what we read now is it says that the heads of fathers' houses now return... Everyone else stays back in their houses, but on day two, on January 2nd, everyone else returned, these, these heads of fathers' houses, they return with the, the Levites and the priests, with Ezra, for a more in-depth Bible study. This is what's going on. 
more in-depth Bible study. And when it says the heads of fathers' houses, commentators tend to agree that, that that most likely means the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Israel had been divided up into to 12 tribes, and there would have been a representative leader for each tribe, and it's suggesting that those 12 people came, sat down with Ezra for a more in-depth Bible study. And there's a, a, a stark comparison here, a very strong comparison here when you see Ezra meeting with these, these 12 heads. Uh, you can really imagine Jesus with his 12 disciples that he called, that he specifically went in depth with, right? That Jesus taught the crowds and people were confused by his teaching. People did not quite understand his teaching, but he says to his disciples, I'm going to explain it to you. I'm going to let you into the, what it means, and so there's, 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 there's a cool image there, what Ezra's doing with the, the, the heads of each tribe and what Jesus is doing with his uh, 12 disciples as well. And God has a habit of doing this throughout biblical history where you see God starts with a figurehead, communicates his revelation, his truth to a figurehead to be disseminated to all the people. So it starts right at the beginning with Adam in the garden, God gives him, he's kind of like the head of the human race, as it were, and God gives him the, the first commandment to follow, and it's supposed to be disseminated from that point out. We see, you see it through Abraham, the promise to Abraham, and hey, you're going to have all these offspring, and the promises to you and to your offspring. You see it there, you see it through the story of Nehemiah here. You keep tracing it through lots of characters, lots of people throughout the Bible, all the way to the ministry of Jesus, and even beyond that, into the, the lives of the disciples, that God raises up these figureheads that are supposed to disseminate out the truth of God. This is why something like the Reformation that happened in the 16th century was so important, because at that time, um, the Catholic Church actually was doing the opposite of this. They were kind of controlling God's Word and, and hiding God's Word and not really teaching the people the Word of God. They, instead, they would, had corrupt practices like indulgences and other such things. You can if you read much about the reformation of the church in history, you'll, you'll learn some of these things that happened, and they were doing the opposite. Instead, they're supposed to be, you know, spiritual leaders are supposed to be those who are not just hungry for the word and learning the word, but those who are disseminating the revelation and the understanding of God to the rest of the people, to all the tribes, so that all the families might know, so that everyone might be in on what God wants people to understand. So the Bible uses this meta metaphorical language of a head to describe people in positions of authority, in positions of power. And so this idea of, of, of he's talking about the, the heads of fathers' houses, this idea of headship kind of permeates our culture, and it comes directly from the Bible. It's an idea in the Bible that permeates our culture. And so um, you, ha you have, you know, uh, even, even if you're like filling in like a, like a census form or something, it'll ask you like, who's the head of household, right? That, that phrase, head of household, that comes from that's an idea that comes directly from the metaphorical use of these terms uh, historically and in the Bible. But it still permeates our culture. So, for example, an organization, you know, they'll have, if they have a central location, what's it called? It's called a headquarters, right? If you, uh, on a football team, you might have several coaches, but you've got a head coach. You have an article, but the article has a headline to it, right? You have a fountain head, a spear head, a river head. And when I look in the mirror, I see an egg head and a meat head sometimes, all kind of heads everywhere, all the time. Some of you just had a head explosion thinking about that. But the, the, the point is that the Bible uses this idea. Jesus even himself is the head. That's why the church is called a body. So you have a head and a body. 
The church is, is led by you know, Jesus who has authority, who has leadership and headship over us and power to lead us. And, so, and that, that idea is translated into marriage and into ministry as well. Um, the Apostle Paul specifically talks about this in the New Testament in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3. He talks about, he actually says that uh, God is the head of Christ. God is the head of Christ. So you have a headship position and then a bodyship position, if you will. And then from there, we, we see in the Bible that then this, this dynamic that's described in the nature of God is translated into marriage, into ministry, into these other uh, spheres that God puts his image into, that God puts his own design into, if you will. So anyone in a position of, in a head position, in a position of authority and responsibility and power, especially spiritually speaking, has a great responsibility to study and understand God's word. They've been called specifically to that role in order to get God's knowledge and God's understanding and God's revelation, God's wisdom, to get it out to all the people. The goal is everyone's got to understand it. Everyone needs to know it. But God works through this, this kind of, the, the heads of fathers' houses. This is the way, some of the way that God, and I don't know, you know exactly why God does it this way, but it's, I think, a reflection of his nature. I think it's what the Bible tells us. That's, that's the one thing we have to accept, we have to understand. That doesn't mean that we're all going to be scholars or that, that those who are in head positions are going to be all scholars like Ezra, but it means that anyone with responsibility can learn from a scholar like Ezra and say, teach me, help me understand this truth so that I can then relay it to those in my care, to those who are under me. This is why at Trinity, Trinity Church we have small groups, right? Because our small groups are kind of like our small group leaders would be kind of heads, as it were, and then the small group members would be the body, as it were, right? That's the head-body kind of metaphor being displayed in that, in that regard, that, that through the leadership of the group, the, the word of God is being disseminated and, and, and being taught to all the people. And of course, that's reciprocal. That, you know, it's not that heads understand or know everything, right? People are always learning things, but the, there's a responsibility there to make sure this is what we're focused on, this is what we're learning, this is what we're doing. That's why we're here. So, so heads have this great responsibility to give themselves to the understanding of the word to get it out to everybody else. We believe that it is the revelation of God's word empowered by the Holy Spirit that leads to transformation. You really can't be changed any other way than receiving the, the, the truth of God, the word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, with the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, showing you that it's true. And you need the work of the Holy Spirit because you know there are people that study the Bible their whole lives in order to debunk it or deny it or reject it. And the word hasn't changed them. The difference is, is the presence of the Holy Spirit to illuminate it, to make it alive to us, that it can, that it can transform us. And so what we see happening with this generation, with, in this day, this moment with Nehemiah that we read today, we see that they discover, in, in studying God's word, they discover something. Yes, they had been celebrating the Festival of Booths. They'd been getting all these leafy branches and making these makeshift, kind of almost like these mini tabernacles, these mini tents uh, to, uh, for, for their festival. They'd been doing that, but they had forgotten something. They had forgotten, you're not just supposed to make the tent, the booth, you're supposed to actually live in it for seven days. They had to, maybe that was a good reason they forgot that. Like, oh yeah, we just forgot that one, whoops. Actually, all, all the people that hate camping just got a little worried, right? But don't worry, I'm sure someone with some ingenuity is gonna come along and 
you know, run an extension cord and hook up some fans and get some bottled water and a cooler. And we can turn this from a camping situation into a glamping situation pretty quickly. I'm sure we can work on that. But that's what they, in studying God's word, that's suddenly what is revealed to them. We haven't been doing it the way that it had been shown to us. We've missed something. As we looked at it, we got some of it right, but we'd missed this other part. So now let's bring ourselves back to doing this. Um, what's interesting is last week, the passage we looked at, we, we couldn't quite tell exactly what parts of the Torah of the first five books of the Bible that they were reading from, probably definitely in, in Deuteronomy, maybe some other places too. But today we can be very certain that the Ezra is leading them through a Bible study in Leviticus, which is quite cool because I believe one of our small groups is doing Leviticus right now, right? So this is actually like a great parallel here. I don't know, this keeps happening to us somehow. Like God's just all these great parallels for our church in Nehemiah. And uh, the reason that we can be certain of that is that Leviticus is really the only place in the Old Testament that emphasizes that you're supposed to live in the booths. Other parts of Deuteronomy and other parts of, of the first five books talk about the festival of booths and that you're supposed to do it. But it's only really in Leviticus that stresses, yeah, you're supposed to live in it. You're supposed to move into it temporarily for a week. And this, the, the reason that they built this uh, these, these booths was to memorialize their 40 years in the wilderness. So when they'd come out of Egyptian slavery, they, they, because of their disobedience and their distrust of God, that generation was cursed and they were stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. God's like, I'm, I'm done with this generation. Let's get rid of them. Let's get a new generation through who are actually going to trust me and believe my words. And so they, they end up being a tent-dwelling, nomadic tent people for like 40 years, making these making tents, and they have to pack them up, move somewhere. They've got this, this, instead of a temple, they've got this tabernacle, this tent, which is like their place where they do sacrifices and where they worship God, all that kind of stuff. And, but they have to keep, it's, it's nomadic. They have to keep moving it around the wilderness for 40 years, doing this over and over and over again. And so the, the festival of booths is to memorialize and to remember that period of time, that generation, those 40 years, to remember the consequence of distrusting God, that they had to live in these sucky booths and these tents. And, and that's what happened. Leviticus and De Deuteronomy have different parts of this, and you have to read in different parts and then kind of make a summary of it, kind of put it together and say, oh, this part says this, this part says this, let's put it together. And then we've got a comprehensive view of the whole thing that God is calling us to do. This is, some people would call this uh, like systematic theology or biblical theology or just what, what you're, this is the tradition we have that we've, has been passed down to us is that the, the work of the Christian is not just to read one verse and say, oh, got it, that's it, that's exactly what we should do because how many times have we seen that go wrong where you just pluck one verse out and you don't look at the context, you don't look at other verses, don't, you know, honestly, there are some days I'm like, God, could you, could some, some of these things just been slightly easier just, just a few of them been slightly easier, but in God's divine wisdom, he knows best. And there is something wonderful about being stretched and like getting into the depth and the richness of God's word. And you have to piece some things together. You have to say, over here it teaches this, and here it teaches this, and then down here it's teaching this, and over here it's teaching this. And what you're doing is you're harmonizing, because it is all in harmony already, because it's all from God, so it already has, that's part of our faith is, we, we accept and we believe this is God's revelation. It already has a cohesive harmony to it, our job is to discover that, is to look at, piece it together and say, this is a comprehensive, this is an understanding, a summary of it. And that's, that's the tradition that we've received. That's, that's the, all the way back to the days of Nehemiah. That's what Ezra is doing, is sitting down with them, showing them Leviticus, saying, 
hey, look, we've been following the, the, the festival of booths, but we've, do, been, we've, we've missed something. We've missed something. We're supposed to actually move into these things. Because so, ima- I could imagine people making like very small little booths, you know, just like it's just easier. We just make a little, it's like a little play thing, you know. And it's like, actually, you've got to make something that you could actually move into. This is a whole different ballgame. This is a whole, on a whole different level of something that we ha- had forgotten about. So our job is to do the hard work of getting clarity, piecing some things together, looking over here, looking over here, thinking about it, getting clarity on it. And that honestly, sometimes, I mean, there are some things in the Bible I'm still working on. Like, honestly, there are, there are some things I'm still working on. I'm still like, this bit over here, that's, uh, I'm not sure about that. How does that work? How does that work with this thing? You know, and there have been times where over years, then some things have clicked together. You hear a teaching, you read a book on something, or the Holy Spirit shows you something, you go, oh my gosh, I didn't see that it goes like that. I had missed it. And that's the joy of it. That's the joy of the journey. That's why you've got to be, we've got to be patient with God's word. So patient with it, not take things out of context. But the idea is that we seek the clarity, and then once we get the clarity, then we do it. Then we say, we, now we know what we're supposed to do. Now we understand it. So now we've got to do it. That's what they're doing. They're studying it. They're implementing it. I mean, if God wanted me to live in a tent for seven days, it would have to be directly revealed in the Bible to me. There's just no other way it's going to happen. Do I hear an amen? Do I hear an amen from anyone? Any, any, any amens here? All right, maybe you guys like camping. I don't know. All right, fair enough. So where did I get to? So... The, 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 booth of, uh, the festival of booths is designed as a tradition that the people are to do every year, and it reminds them of the past. It memorializes their time in the wilderness, being a nomadic tent-dwelling people, but also it tells them of the present. It, reminds, it teaches them of, of what's happening right now in their present day, as well as giving them expectation for the future. So if you think about it, this is the people's second exodus. The first exodus was, hey, they've been enslaved by Egypt. God sent Moses to get them out. And they came out and eventually got into the promised land. Now, in the book of Nehemiah, they're enslaved in Babylon. And God has sent actually a few key people. Nehemiah is kind of like, in one sense, a Moses kind of figure. Ezra is too, uh, as well. And those figures have been raised up. And now they, their exodus means exit. So they're, they're exiting their... They're, coming out of Babylon, again, back into the promised land where they were before. So it's a repeat of history. It's, it's happening now in that generation. And so it's not just memorializing what happened in the past. It's now teaching them about coming out of Babylon as well. As they celebrate the Festival of Booths, they're learning about coming out, not just from the past of Egypt, but the present. We just come out of Babylon. We just came out of this situation. And God is teaching us and working in us and showing us but the ultimate exodus that we're all going to experience is the exodus of leaving this earth. That's the ultimate, this fallen world, this fallen creation that God's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And we're going to exit this earth and we're going to move into that promised land. That's the, the heavenly city, that we're, the, the heavenly promised land that we're, we're all yearning for. Every human heart is yearning for. That's why people are so desperate to reform society is because they're yearning for heaven. They're yearning for that perfect society, that perfect place. And it can only be found in their future kingdom that God has called us to. And we have to exit and have an exodus out of this world in order to get to that, that place. That's, that's the hope that they ultimately had. And that's the hope that we clearly, that's been now, it was murky to them. They didn't quite understand all of that. To us now, that's ex- explicitly clear. 
to us now in the Bible, that we're looking to exit this land, that we have an exodus ahead of us as well. Now, as Christians, when we study the First Testament, and I, I like to sometimes try and call it the First Testament rather than the Old Testament, because Old Testament sounds like it's old, right? Like, uh, like it's, 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 you know, that it's irrelevant, and, and that's, that couldn't be further from the truth. They're, they're, they're interlocked. You, you, can't, you can't decouple them. You can't separate them. They, you know, and the more you understand the Old Testament, the more you can understand the New Testament, the more you can understand the work and the ministry and the life of Jesus. So they go hand in hand. It was perplexing to me a few years ago. I met with somebody in our church who, who accused us of never teaching from the Old Testament. And I was like, okay, all right, let, let, me, let me be patient with you here. This is... Uh, they, they, I think they visited our church twice. So, so anyway, that was, that was their problem. So uh, anyway, um, I'm still a little frustrated about that conversation, frankly, honestly. It's like, all right, just stick around for a little bit longer. Don't worry. We'll get to it. We'll get to some good Old Testament stuff. And, uh, but they, they, they go together. But when, when Christians, when we're studying the Old Testament, and we've been in this, in this Nehemiah series for an extended period here, you can get lost in it sometimes. You can lose sight of the ministry and the work of Jesus and the transformation uh, of the, what you could call the Second Testament, First Testament, Second Testament, and you, you can start to think like, should we be sacrificing lambs, or uh, should we be building these booths and living in them for seven days, or should we be fighting Philistines, or, you know, these kind of things, although that could be fun uh, to do some of that. But the great news is, and, and you learn this from, from studying the Bible, from reading the Bible, in the New Testament, all the transformations, all the things that when Jesus came, that he was fulfilling from, from the First Testament and then coming in and, and establishing a new covenant with, with, with uh, those who would believe in him, his children, those who, whom he's called. All of that is explained in the writings in the New Testament, in the, the, the apostolic letters that were written in the Gospels. All of that is explained. So anything from the Old Testament that doesn't apply to us anymore is explained in the New Testament. So a lot of these ceremonial things have been completely transformed. So we're specifically told Festival, festival of booths, all these kind of festivals, modern day saints, we don't do those things anymore. All right, we've got direct verses that tell us this was for a time period, this is what they meant, we don't do them anymore. They've been, Jesus has transformed these things, Jesus has fulfilled these things and led us into a new era, into a second chapter, if you will, into a second testament, if you will. But even though that's true, that doesn't mean that we don't have customs and traditions. So the greatest custom, so Jesus actually started some new ones. So the festival of, of booths is done away with, but what did Jesus institute? Actually, the most important custom, the most important tradition that, that he gave to Christians is communion, which has some parallels, actually, in, in some regard to this, has parallels to other things as well. You see that as well with the custom of circumcision. The New Testament custom is baptism, clear change from one to the other. You see it, though, uh, with communion as well. Jesus gave us communion. It goes by different names, Eucharist, Lord's Supper, the table, you know, breaking bread, different things. And there's some similarities with the Festival of Booths and with communion. So they're reenacting as they build this booth with all these leafy branches and reenact their time in the wilderness and memorialize that, when we take communion, we take the, 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 the bread and, and the, 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 the cup, and we're reenacting. It is somewhat of a memorial. It is, that is a huge part of what it is. We're reenacting. We're remembering 
the sacrifice of Christ, the body and blood of Jesus broken for us. And in doing that, what we're looking to, when we take communion, we're looking to our past failure, just like they were looking to their past failure. We're looking to the present. This teaches me something about the present, that, that, that I need God in the here and now, that I, I didn't just need him when I first got saved, but I, I need him to sustain me, to nourish me, to, to get me through today, to get me through every day. I need him. But also, when we take communion, it points, it, it, it anticipates the future that I will also suffer with Christ, as Christ suffered, as his body was broken, his blood was shed, I will suffer with him too. It's that, but, but also the greatest promise, I'll be resurrected with him as well. That's why we have these customs. These customs, something like communion, there's so many layers to it that are baked into it that it's, it's a powerful ritual that we go through to remind us, because we forget, we so easily forget these things, to remind us of all these glorious things. So just as they forgot something about the the, the festival of booths, we should ask ourselves, is there anything about communion? We could ask it about any of our customs, any of the tradi Christian traditions that we have, but is there anything about communion in particular that we have forgotten, that we've drifted from, that we just missed somehow? Next week, I'm going to get more, I'm going to dive a bit more into this again, so I'm going to not give a complete answer to this. I'm going to give one, one part of it and then finish it up next week because it ties into the passage for next, next week as well. Think about this for us. With, with, the, with the booth, they had made it, but they didn't realize they were supposed to dwell in it. Let's apply this to communion. With communion, it's not something, it's, when we approach the table, understanding you know, the, the metaphorical table, right? as we approach the table, it's not just something that we receive. It should be, it, it's a meal. It's, it's a place to dwell. It's a place that we should live into. We should take a moment it's not just something to check off the list, like, oh, yeah, it's just communion is just another step in, in the service. It's just something we do at a certain point, and, you know, we close our eyes and look religious. You know, we got to make sure that we're not, we're, not, we're not missing the heart of why we're doing it. Jesus gave it to us as a repetitive thing that we're supposed to do over and over and over again to express oneness with God, that I dwell with God. I am in the presence of God, and I'm unified with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And not just the ones present, definitely the ones present, but globally, all believers around the world. We all come to the same table. We all come to that, that, that sac that's the only <laughs> sacrifice that can save us. We all come to that together. So today, as we take communion, we, after the sermon, we'll do a song, and then we, that's our, typically our rhythm, we do a song, and then after that, we'll, we'll take communion together. And I want to, we're going to take a little bit extra time today for this. And I want to encourage us as we do this to make sure that we're dwelling at the table in our hearts to, to, to say, is there anything that I'm, I'm missing in this moment of communion that I've gotten away from, that I've forgotten, that used to mean more to me? And I need to stoke that back up in my own heart, that this is a moment to, to express my oneness with God's people and my oneness with God. And, what Christ has done for me, to live into that. Because in the wilderness, in the wilderness, the people, they, when, when, when they were living in these tents, they were experiencing this nomadic life. And so by building these booths, the people are then saying, we're experiencing this, what it was like to live back then. In the same way as we take communion, what we're doing is we're, we're acting out, I get nourished by the bread and the wine. 
I get, I get nourishment. It's a meal. It's, it's spiritual food to me. It's not just a mindless meal. It has great significance to it. It's a feast. It's, a, it's, it's, it's our festival of booths, if you will. It's, it's, it's receiving the promise from God. It's, it's walking into the promised land. Receiving communion is, is, is the doorway into the promised land, is the doorway into the, 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 the heavenly land. It's, 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 walk, it's going into Jerusalem. It's, instead of, instead of the, the starvation of the wilderness, we get to experience the meal of heaven, the, the food of God. You know, it's not, Jesus didn't give us you know, water and, and, and vegetables as, as the elements to remember his, de- his, his sacrifice by, right? He didn't give us that. Wine is beyond water. Water sustains you and, and definitely satisfies you, but, but wine is, is celebratory. Wine has to be prepared. has to go through a process. Bread, again, bread, it's not just something that's picked out of the ground or off of a tree or something. It's something that's, that's harvested, that's baked, that's prepared, that that, 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 I mean, eating bread, I mean, you know, when it's, you, know, you get some freshly baked bread that's all warm and you put butter on it, like that warm, cozy, you know, I'm like getting fully carved up. I know carbs get a bad, have a bad reputation now in our day and age, but that idea, that idea of that, that comfort and that, that warmth and that I'm full, you know, man, I'm full. And that's the thing with bread. I mean, honestly, like I'm a bread monster. I just want to keep eating the bread, like the bread... It's, it's like this, I understand why Jesus chose bread as these, this powerful imagery to, to, to communicate you know, spiritual nourishment. Because it's like, man, this stuff is so good. This is so good. As we receive it, it's nourishment to our souls. It's not just, it's not just water and, and vegetables. It's, it's wine and it's bread. And it's a joyful thing. It's a celebratory thing. The, the booth of festivals would have been hard living in this makeshift leafy tent for a week, that would have been hard. It would have reminded them of the hardship of the wilderness and to trust, make sure they trust God. You don't want to end up back in that place. Make sure you trust God. What a blessing. But they would have joy in this festival as well. What a blessing. We get to take communion and we get to find the greatest joy, the greatest nourishment in God. At Trinity, we... We do value celebratory response, celebratory worship to God. We want to have, we want to be emotionally, have an emotional t- integrity so that we experience all the different emotions in our worship, just like you see in the Psalms and you see in other parts of the Bible, so that we have times of lament and sorrow. Like that's, that's emotional integrity and emotional maturity to say that there are times corporately to experience that together. But what's also very important for us at Trinity is that. We, we really want to end on a high note. We really want to end with that celebration so that we, no matter what sadness or what sorrow we experience at certain points or what introspection we might have or moments of repentance we might have, that we end on that celebratory note because we're, this is a festival. This is a celebration. We're receiving wine because what God has given, obviously we use juice, but you understand it's the, the metaphor of it. The, but the wine is, symbolizes making the heart glad, which is part of the reason Jesus gave it to symbolize communion as this is our greatest joy in what God is doing. So that's why we, that's part of our philosophy of ministry at Trinity is that we, 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 want, to, we want to come in without, we come in with our burdens, we come in with the week behind us and all the things that have happened. We come in and we can express all those different emotions and bring all that to God and cast that burden on God. But then together as God's people, we receive the cup and we receive the, the bread and we, we, we remember what he's done. We're filled with that joy. And then we, we celebrate and we lift our spirits up. We find that joy in God and we go back out into the world filled with greater joy 
than we had before. As part of our, as part of the thing, the power that sustains us through the darkness of the world, but also part of the power of our witness to the world. That our joy is in the source of joy itself, in God himself. And so did you, did you notice here actually that the booths were built with all these leafy branches and one of them were palm branches. Specifically says they use palm branches to build these booths. And what it appears to indicate throughout Jewish history is that palm branches, based on the fact that they were used in the festival of booths, became a universal symbol of celebration. So if you were a Jew who lived 2,000 plus years ago and you wanted to celebrate something, you would grab some palm branches and you would be waving them around. And that was just understood. Just like, you know, in our culture, well, you know, Christmas time, we put up a Christmas tree, right? Easter time, you, have, you get eggs and maybe five flags for different, you know, different seasons throughout the year. Or, uh, you know, St. Patrick's Day, we dye the river green or, you know, sporting events, people got those foam fingers. You know, there's different symbols, right, of celebration in our culture. You understand, like, when you see those things happening, you say, oh, yeah, like, we all get it. Like, yeah, we're celebrating that. You know, if you're in a, in a sports stadium and people start chanting, you know, the, the anthems of, of the different teams or the, 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 the nostalgic songs, right? That's part of, oh, yeah, we get it. This is, the, uh, this is part of our ritual. This is part of the thing that we use to celebrate, to, to enjoy the, the moment. And, uh, and so we see it when Jesus enters Jerusalem, what's called the triumphal entry, generations later on, the, the city that Nehemiah and his generation had restored. When Jesus enters on a donkey, what do the people do? The natural reaction is they grab palm branches and they're waving them and they're laying them down like a red carpet, like we would think of, like, you know, that's how we would, you know, think of it, like, oh, an important people should be on a red carpet, right? So, but they, they for them, it's palm branches. They lay them down, they wave them in the air because they want, to, that, that's the go-to thing. We gotta give the, the greatest celebration. We gotta give the greatest celebration for Jesus. What's interesting was that the triumphal entry for Jesus into Jerusalem was during the Passover not during the Festival of Booths. So in the person of Jesus, we see the culmination, the coming together of all the Old Testament festivals kind of as like a mashup. They kind of have their fulfillment and culmination and coming together in the person of Jesus. And so these palm branches have a powerful symbol. They were actually engraved in the, the doors of the temple in, in Jerusalem. They were even on, on Jewish currency that they had. They had palm branches engraved on their currency. This was a symbol they saw every day, every time they looked at the temple, every time they went past the temple or, or brought their sacrifice to the temple, every time they exchanged currency, they would see palm branches because that represented celebration and joy in God. And so we see the greatest, the greatest reason to celebrate, the greatest reason to have joy is the coming of Jesus into the world. And so our greatest celebration should be about the person and the work of the coming of Jesus into the world. So you grab whatever you use to celebrate, whatever, however you can celebrate, whatever customs of celebration we have, let's use them to celebrate the greatest event, the greatest work of history, the coming and the ministry of Jesus. Because only through Jesus has salvation come to all people. Only through Jesus. This is the good news. This is the good news. We don't look to... Or, the wooden, the wooden booths as a symbol of our salvation, although our salvation, the history of our salvation is caught up in that story, we look to the, the wooden cross, the greatest sacrifice. We don't look to, to the bread and the wine of the world 
to satisfy us or to celebrate. We look to the, the bread and wine of the kingdom of God to help us celebrate, to satisfy us, to help us enter into this joyful experience. If there's anything we've forgotten, if we learn it from God's word, if we, if we cherish God's word and we discover something glorious and wonderful, we're those who say, through this study, I have found this and therefore I'm going to do it. I'm not just going to stand at the table. I'm not just going to receive it. I'm going to dwell at the table with my brothers and sisters, with the presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to dwell. We want to get into this, into this attitude of worship. We want to sing to Jesus. We want to raise our celebration to Jesus, Come, coming to him, knowing that it's only through his death and his resurrection, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the tomb, that we can find life that we can be set free from all the evil in our own hearts and that we can forgive the evil that's done against us as well. It is the only hope, the only way, and it's the greatest joy we have. It's the greatest joy we have. And I gotta tell you, it's a gift. See, in the Old Testament, they gave sacrifices, but it was never enough. They had to give sacrifices over and over again. And Jesus did away with that system of sacrifice. He overcame that system of sacrifice by becoming our sacrifice once and for all. So it is done. You don't have to work for it. You do good works because of it. You don't do good works to earn it. This is the good news. If you have to earn the salvation that comes through Jesus, it's bad news because you can never do enough good to get it. This is the greatest message that's ever been declared throughout all of history. It comes through the grace and the ministry of Jesus. Let's celebrate it today.